This week's episode is sponsored by Jagged Edge Productions and ITN Studios' Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2. Only in theaters, March 26th to March 28th. The suspenseful and thrilling sequel to last year's immense hit, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, amplifies the gore factor with ten times the number of kills to put fans both new and old at the edge of their seats. After Christopher Robin reveals their existence, Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, Tigger, and Owl land on the endangered species list as hard targets. Unwilling to hide in the shadows, the ultimate scream team embarks on a murderous rampage through the town of Ashdown to get their revenge on Christopher Robin, once and for all. So don't miss out, and mark your calendars to catch the limited engagement of Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2, only in theaters March 26th to March 28th. Tickets are available now. Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. Before we start the show, I'd also like to say a huge thank you to Brian Maddox for interviewing me for The Hollywood Times. I will link it in the show notes. It was a fun interview. I hope you like it. Uh, And another huge thank you to Sarah Century for including me on podcastreview.org's nine terrific horror podcasts that should not be overlooked. I'll link that as well because there are some amazing shows on there if you're looking to beef up your scary podcast subs. Um, there were a couple that I had I actually hadn't been um, subscribed to, and I'm so excited to be among such amazing company. Okay, on to this week's story. It's a doozy. Please read the trigger warnings. I know you, or you know that I usually just keep them in the show notes. I'm still just keeping them in the show notes, but you know, when I remind you to go look at them, then you should probably go give it a, give it a look (laughs) before you decide to listen to this week's episode. You remember Heinrich von Wolfcastle from his story, A Scream Before Dawn? Well, he is back with this week's terrifying tale, Marvin's Tavern. Marvin's Tavern stands somewhat crooked and has for about as long as anyone can remember. The plaque hanging near the front door says it was built sometime in the late 1800s, and once you're inside, it sounds every bit its age with all of its creaks and groans. It's old, scenic maybe, with a long lake at its back, but it's not remarkable. If you didn't know to look for it, you might not even find it. It's kind of like a man pointed to a hill on a whim one day and thought to clear a space between the trees and build a bar there. I suppose that is what happened, and that man's name was Marvin. Marvin was something of a local legend, fame or infamy, maybe a little bit of both. In its prime, Marvin's Tavern was an evening fixture, a place to stop for a drink or to end your night. Marvin served as bartender while catching up with the local folk about the latest happenings. They hung a photograph of him in the bar from his younger days, candidly captured wiping down some glasses with his serious expression hidden behind a formidable mustache. He only had one child, 
a son named Maurice. From what I understand, Marvin's wife, Beth, was killed in a horse and buggy accident some years into Maurice's childhood. Some say it was a highway robbery and that she was targeted as Marvin's wealthy wife. Others say that she was actually the one doing the robbing. The verdict was never really reached on that one. Either way, Marvin wouldn't remarry or seek out other female company. He claimed that she was his one and only true love, and he seemed to bring up her smile at every opportunity that he could. He even commissioned an artist to paint a picture of her in mid-laugh, an uncommon practice for the time. He hung the picture behind the bar, where I imagine it still sits today, a bit dusty and a bit worn, maybe. Maurice didn't have the charm that his father had. He was born mostly deaf, which made it hard for him to make friends. He could lip-read and understand others well enough, but he had a real bad speech impediment. The town folks talked about him behind his back and made their jokes, but no matter their gossip. He had a way with tools and carpentry that silenced even the cruelest of the town critics. The thing about Maurice was, being unable to hear and all, Marvin learned to become real protective of him. He harassed the boys and girls that came near the tavern, just assuming they were there to mock Maurice. So, eventually, some of the local boys thought to get a little payback at Marvin's expense. They came into the bar one afternoon when Maurice was by himself, and a few jokes turned into an all-out fight. From what legend says, the boys were making fun, earning their trouble that Marvin was giving them anyway, when Maurice tried to defend himself. He might have gotten a few good swings in, but he was outnumbered. They managed to get his arms behind his back and pinned him to the ground. While he was held down, the leader of the group took a knife from the bar and cut Maurice's ears off. You don't use them anyway, he cackled. A real sick bunch, these kids were. Well, when Marvin returned to the bar, the boys were standing over Maurice, laughing and holding his ears up to his head and taking them on and off again. Grasping the scene, Marvin took the claw side of a hammer and caught the leader in the back with it, while the rest of them were scuffling out of there. He also caught one of the slower ones by the hair. They say the boys' faces were unrecognizable when they were found. Neither of them survived, and that changed public opinion of Marvin. Not that it was too high to begin with. The dead boys' fathers came back to the bar that night with a few other men and intended to kill Marvin. Eye for an eye kind of stuff. Something snapped in Marvin, and according to survivors from that night, he wrestled two of them to the ground and strangled them to death. He fought off another one of them, too, shattering the man's face in different places, and he died from his injuries some days later. The boys may have started the fight, but Marvin sure finished it. Some suspected the police would arrest him, but for one reason or another, they hardly investigated the murders. Some said that Marvin had them all in his pocket, and others said that what Marvin did was just simple as that. Either way, it wasn't good for business, and the toll it took on him seemed to accelerate his aging. In his last years, Marvin's black mustache turned white, along with his wild eyebrows. He hobbled around, hunched over, muttering about his body falling apart. 
When something in the bar needed repair, Maurice stepped in to do the fixing. Marvin spent his final years trading glances between his painting of his laughing Beth and his own wrinkled and shaking hands. After the controversy, there were no more customers for the bar, though it couldn't have happened at a better time since Prohibition was just getting started anyway. Some thought that that would be the end of Marvin's Tavern, but apparently the two men managed to find a new line of revenue to keep the place afloat. No one could quite figure out what it was. Weekends and weeknights, out-of-town characters showed up dressed to the nines to close the place out. Everyone just assumed they were liquoring up the cops or paying forward political favors. At the same time, they say Marvin passed away in a falling accident in the bar's cellar, and Maurice had something like a mental breakdown and became a recluse thereafter, seen less and less often outside the bar, until he seemed to disappear altogether. Towards the end of those years, just about everyone in town had forgiven Marvin's nefarious history and connection to the place. Well, except for the last of those boys' fathers. Just as business started rolling again, he threw a bottle bomb through a window and set the place on fire. He admitted his guilt and didn't fight the charges, though he wouldn't discuss what compelled him to do it. Some considerable damage was done, including handfuls of deaths, but nothing to wipe the place away completely. Marvin's Tavern really is the best-kept secret in town, and its complicated past splits public opinion on it. Either the town folk frequent it, or they change the conversation when you talk about it. The first time I saw the place, I had just spent the night out drinking at the lake under the hill, just blowing off steam. I had this old wooden raft that I'd throw out into the water and drift around on until it returned to shore. It was the kind of thing I'd done a hundred times before, but that night, I ended up drinking a little more than I could handle. I must have passed out and rolled into the water. The coldness of it was a brutal surprise, like a worst-case scenario for falling out of bed. It just sucked the breath out of me. I'm sure there was some comedic value to it if anyone had been watching as I splashed around and tried to climb back on the damn splinter thing. I could hardly stay afloat, so I gave up and headed to shore. But I was all turned around, and I came out right at the base of the hill. Anyway, after I made it out of the water... I thought to go up and over the hill to the main road, rather than taking the long trek back around the lake. Sure enough, as I crept over the top of the hill, there was Marvin's tavern, in all her glory, and God did I need a drink. That night and for the rest of my summer, I drank and made a nook for myself amongst the locals, learning the sordid history of the place. But that bar... She's a deceptive one. Having a drink there was like having a drink in your own grandmother's living room. If only your grandmother's house were built over Satan's debt. The funny thing about having a drinking problem is that the details, those little facts, the pieces of truth on wheels, seem to always be rolling away when you reach for them. When I look at the few details I managed to hang on to from my last night at Marvin's, the picture they paint is a bleak one. 
I was parked at the wobbliest stool, just a little bit right of center at the bar, with my favorite bartender, Ellie. One lesson my foster dad taught me early on was that when you're going for something, go all in and go in good company. Ellie was about as good of company as you could find. She looked like she was in her late 20s, but she would tell you stories about what her late 20s were like when she lived them more than 20 years ago. Some people hire a shrink to talk to. Me? I had Ellie. Like her drinks, her words of wisdom packed a punch. And let me tell you, you don't learn to swing like that until you've been around the block a bit. Next to me was my favorite new drinking buddy, Hank. Under that gruff beard of his was always a frown, but I swear he meant it like a smile. He was the sort of guy you'd fear breaking into your house in the middle of the night with a shotgun or something. I like to remind him that he would probably die alone for that reason. He'd thank me for the advice, calling me a motherless son of a bitch in return, but always with a pat on the back. So there we were, finishing our first round of drinks when Hank thought to ask Ellie for something special. After some consideration, Ellie poured him something she called death in the afternoon. Well, listen, absinthe gets a bad rap. What makes for a nice night? You just enjoy the drink and don't tell anyone who poured it. Ellie explained. Capiche? Capiche? Hank said with a wink. Hey, Ellie. What if I wanted to try something a little less safe? I asked. I think a little death in the afternoon would do you just fine, too. She replied. No, I mean, that's good and all. I began. But you made that for me before. What would you be pouring for you, if you were me? You really want to know what I would make for me? Yeah. What would that be? I asked. You really want to go for it, huh? Ellie asked. She paused, tilted her head, and let out a deep sigh. Absolutely. Give me something ominous, I said. Listen, if you think you're ready for it, I've got something for you. But I'm only making you one, and if you tell anybody about it, I'll deny it. Shit, Ellie, what's in it? I asked. Without answering, Ellie grabbed a glass from the counter and took it behind a closed door in the back. I turned to Hank. Is she serious? I asked. (laughs) I've learned not to mess with her. Hank chuckled. Ellie returned from the room with a minuscule amount of some kind of foaming liquid in the bottom of a glass. She proceeded to mix a few other bottles into it and then slid it across the counter to me. Listen, Ryan. You drink this slow and just enjoy the ride, she cautioned. What is it? I asked. It's a family secret. She winked. I only give it to my favorites. And it comes with a coffee at the end of the night, so you can tell me all about it. I held the glass in my hand and swirled the drink a couple of times, imagining that I knew what to do to appreciate it. It had a pungent odor to it. Something was hiding under the smell of liquor. 
I put it to my lips and noticed nothing unusual except for the taste. If drinking scotch had hints of smoke flavoring, then this was like drinking dirty rainwater out of a fire pit. Wow, Ellie, this is awful. This is what you would make for your favorites? I want my money back, I joked. Just take it slow, young blood. She smiled. You want a sip? I asked Hank. He waved my offer off with his hand. Ellie's already made me one of those. One was enough. He chuckled. Hank must have had five or six drinks before I finished my first. We played a game of chicken to see who would be the first to have to get up to hit the john. I don't remember the score that night, but Hank was the first to break the seal. By the time I had to go, I was a bit off balance, to say the least. I hobbled my way to the bathroom, cautiously bracing myself against the wall to not tear any of the fraying wallpaper. Once I got to the door, I kind of fell inside. I went in there to take a leak, but I couldn't find the urinals. They were all taken off the wall or something, replaced with stalls. I don't like to make a habit of sitting in public restrooms, but settling for a stall didn't seem like such a bad idea in my condition. It was only then when I was already sitting down, that I realized I was in the women's restroom. That was all right, though. I thought it would make for a funny story to remember the night by. Something to add to a future catalog of remember that time when. But that was the last part of the night that resembled any kind of normalcy. I was considering leaving the stall to head to the men's room when the bathroom door swung open. A woman walked past, wearing a bright green dress that clung to the best curves on her body, and she carried a small bag with her. I peeked out from the crack between the stall and the door to see her remove some kind of black band and feather from her head. I didn't mean to be watching her, but I couldn't leave the stall either. The last thing I wanted was for someone to call the cops about a pervert hanging out in the women's bathroom. I tucked my legs onto the toilet and sat as quietly as I could while waiting for her to leave. Instead of leaving, two more women came in after her, each one just as stunning as the first, and each with her own cloth bag. The second woman wore a red dress with tassels and had multiple layers of white pearls hanging from her neck. The third woman wore a black dress with gold chains dangling from it. My first impression was, these women must have been celebrities or movie stars, but what would they be doing at Marvin's Tavern? The three women watched themselves in the mirror while removing their ornate pieces of jewelry and headbands, placing them with care into the small bags they had brought with them. They didn't speak or even acknowledge one another as they removed pieces of their outfits. The woman in green reached to the bottom of her dress and pulled it up over her head, exposing her bare body, with exception to her underwear and bra. I wish I could say I had the decency to look away, but I did not. Aside from admiring her form, I was taken aback by the design of her undergarments. Believe me, I had seen enough women in different styles of underwear before to know that what she was wearing was strange. She was like a vintage model. 
The woman in red removed her dress next, revealing something like a tight nightgown. The woman in black also wore some kind of slip beneath her dress. Each of them removed those layers as well and placed them in their bags. The three women stood momentarily naked and beautiful in front of the bathroom mirror in silence. Next, the one that had been wearing the green dress brought her hand to her face and looked to be digging her nails into the skin under her jaw. I put my hand over my mouth to keep from gasping as I saw little trails of blood drip down her arms. I wanted to burst from the stall to stop her from hurting herself, but the other two women started doing the same thing. They each pulled the skin back from under their jaws and unraveled the flesh from their faces. They were muscle-tissued and red. Systematically, as if going through routine, each of them continued to skin their bodies with their nails. Each made her way down her neck, and shoulders, and arms, and torsos, and legs, leaving a puddle of blood at their feet. The room began to spin, and I thought I was going to pass out or puke, maybe both. As much as I wished to look away, I was captivated by their grotesque bodies. After skinning themselves, the women reached into their bags for long black gowns and placed them over their bloodied masses, losing their form and figures under thick layers of robed cloth. Finally, the women brought out headpieces from their bags to complete their outfits. They appeared to be long and leathered beaks, the kind of thing doctors wore during the Black Plague. They placed the masks over their faces, obscuring their mouths and expressions, and then took turns securing them with laces and belt hooks. Without words, they stood in front of the mirror, lifted their hoods from their robes, and walked single file from the restroom. Once they left, I stumbled my way out of the stall and crashed into the bathroom sink having slipped on the trails of blood that coagulated into one pool of crimson. I thought to look through their bags, but began to gag at their iron-laden smell. Dizzied, I pushed the bathroom door open and became lost in the hall. The entire bar had gone silent. No music, no chatter, no nothing. I leaned on the wall for support and made my way in the dim hallway towards the bar. As I went, my hands traced the wall until it gave way with the weight of my body. Something like a secret door flew open from the hall, revealing a long set of wooden stairs, which I proceeded to tumble down, head over heels. I awoke at the bottom of the stairs, with aches and pains shooting up my legs. It was dark, but I could make out a series of glowing candles flickering in a large circle. As my eyes adjusted, I could see a group of individuals in leathered beaks, surrounding the configuration of candles. There appeared to be no edges between their robes and the darkness. In the middle of the circle was the bent body of a man lying next to a skeleton. They rested on an etching that was carved into the ground. I thought to call out for help, but could not find my words. By the time I could process what I was seeing, 
I realized I was shrieking and already scrambling to find my way up the stairs. In my raucous fumbling, one figure broke from the formation and removed the beak and hood from his head. The last image I have of the night was a skinless man without ears. I told you, my memory of that night was bleak. There are hangovers and there are hanged overs. I woke up the next afternoon to a blistering fever, having somehow been passed out and up all night at the same time. The worst thing about a fever is that it makes your bones ache, your blood boils, and everything is sensitive to touch, like you have no skin. I never did get that coffee from Ellie at the end of the night. Or maybe I did, and I didn't remember. I spent the next week or two as a zombie, just puking my brains out. I remember that. Classes and finals were missed, and before I knew it, I was a community college dropout with nothing to say to anybody. Not hard to do when you grow up a foster kid. Always a quote-unquote son, with an unspoken asterisk. In the days and weeks that followed, there had been thin stretches of sobriety, but there had also been profound stretches of walking the highway and kicking stones in a drunken stupor, like some kind of demented animal on the prowl. As weeks bled into months and years, I lost my home, my friends, and my so-called family. In those days before cell phones, it was easier to just disappear. And I made a habit of it. I did well to stay away from Marvin's, though. The idea of going back was about as good of an idea as sending a werewolf to live on the moon. But eventually, I saw the thing I always hoped for and dreaded at the same time. A property for sale sign. Apparently, Marvin's tavern was going to disappear. I guess I decided that if there was ever a reason to go back, it was to say goodbye. I took the long walk to Marvin's, trekking up the backside of the hill and taking my time to remember what it was like when I first found the place. My clothes soaked, my body exhausted, and totally out of breath. I couldn't decide if I hoped to find Ellie still working there or not. Even if she did still work there, would she remember me? One of her favorites? I made my way around to the front, admiring the construction that two hands had built and two more hands had maintained for so many years, at least in the places where you could see the original work. A cold sweat broke out on the back of my knees. I wasn't sure of what I was going to find or do when I opened the door. No, I knew the answer to that. Have a drink. Touching the doorknob, I remembered the image of Maurice, the bloodied man without ears from the cellar. He had taken up residence in the back parts of my mind over the years, a reminder that I just might be clinically insane. God knows what happened down there that night or what was in my drink. I turned the knob and had to kick it in a bit 
stubborn as ever, making for more of an entrance than I intended. I closed the door behind me and was greeted by a round of applause from a full room of patrons. Hey, there he is, the guest of the hour, one of them yelled. Men and women across the bar rose to their feet in a gradual wave and continued to clap for me. I was dumbfounded by the reception I received, half unsure if I was hallucinating or if I was standing near someone else who had recently arrived and deserved the celebration. I was most struck by the sameness of the place, as if I had walked into some kind of living, breathing time capsule. The whole thing was like walking into a dream. I'd been called delusional before, but I swear they were waiting for me. Cheers continued to follow and deflate as I smirked and nodded, doing my best to hold back the sense of panic building in my chest. Something was wrong. Something was oh so very wrong. For you, Ryan. A guy named Ed called out from the entrance of the bar. He lifted his drink and took a swig. I remembered him. He was the local dancing drunk. Oh, come on. What is this shit? I muttered under my breath. I was ready for the Marvin's Tavern experiment to end immediately. I hustled to turn back to the door, but was blocked by a couple wearing what looked like party clothes from the 1920s. It's for you, Ryan. They answered with obscene smiles. How do you know my name? I asked in a whisper. I shrank back in an effort to distance myself from the attention. A pit of nausea rolled in my stomach, and I tried to make my way again for the door. But no matter how I turned, the whole tavern seemed to bend and turn with me, giving me the feeling I had been drugged and dizzied. The bar was the only way forward. A man seated at a booth tipped his hat to me. Up there, Ryan, he said. He pointed to the stool, a little right of center from the bar, and nodded. Don't let them bother you. We're just happy to see you is all. Another voice called out. It was like someone stuck me on pause while everyone else around me was allowed to keep moving, drinking, cheering, celebrating. A woman in a navy blue dress approached me and gave me a kiss on the cheek. Drink with us, Ryan, she said. Yeah, I stuttered out, finding my voice. I scanned the room in detail, taking in the old, worn wooden flooring and the pinstripe wallpaper still splitting at the edges. The odd assortment of customers in the bar looked to be attending something like a decade party with everyone in costumes from the 1920s and on. Regardless of their outfits, all eyes were on me, encouraging me to make my way towards the stool that seemed to be waiting for me. I walked to it with hesitation, skimming my hand against creaky old wooden tabletops along the way. As I approached the bar and my old wobbly stool, I saw Ellie 
posted behind the counter, still looking as young and spry and joyful as ever. We made eye contact, and she patted the place at the bar in front of her. Something about her calmed the waves in my stomach. What'll it be tonight, young blood? She asked with a smile. Whoa! Hold on! I exclaimed with pause. What in the hell is going on here? She laughed. (laughs) It's good to see you again, Ryan. She said. I mean it! What the hell is going on here? I stammered, looking at the countertop and back to Ellie. And look at you! What? What? What is your secret? I asked, dragging out the words. Just breathe, Rye Guy. Here's a gin and tonic. Let's ride that train for a while, she said. I nodded, forcing a false sense of ease. Ellie poured my drink, slid it to me, and then took a swig off the bottle. Don't tell, she said and winked. Yeah, I replied with a sneer. How was it possible that this place, that these people could look so much the way I left them a decade or so ago. The question had me scrambling to make sense of my sanity. Nothing they can do to you now, the man to my left said. It was Hank. I was so distracted by seeing Ellie, I didn't even realize he was sitting right there with me, looking not aged by a day since our last night together. God damn, Hank! I reached over and shook his hand, surprising myself with my own enthusiasm. God damn yourself! (laughs) He chuckled, still grasping my hand. It's been too goddamn long. He gave my arm another shake. I surveyed the place from over Hank's shoulder, noticing a cluster of crooked pictures adorning the wall, still not straightened since I last saw them. Out of the corner of my eye, I caught a glimpse of Ellie watching me with a look of warmth and concern. A part of me wished to let my guard down, wished to admit that, despite my questions, it just felt good to be back. All right, let's have a round for Ryan here, a drink in his honor! A man called from a table in the back. Cheers to that! A woman next to Hank said and took a sip of her beer. She was wearing a green dress. That left me feeling unsettled. A reminder of the woman in the green dress from the night when everything unraveled. The resemblance was unsettling. Cheers. Ellie returned. I sat back firmly on my stool and took a sip from my drink. I just... I don't understand any of this. I started. How did any of you know I'd be here? How do you all look the same? We're just so happy you're finally here with us. Ellie smiled. Hank nodded after taking a sip from his drink. 
Why is everyone saying that? I asked, with a rising tension in my voice. Come on, Rye Guy. Don't be like that. This is your night. The woman green encouraged. My night. I don't have a night. My frustration was building again with every statement that avoided my questions. Nothing made sense. The round of applause, everyone knowing that I'd be here. How do you know my name? I asked her. How does everyone know my name? Paul Bloke's confused. Still doesn't know, does he? A man replied from behind Ellie. He reached for a bottle on the top shelf behind the bar, presenting his back to me. If he doesn't know, he can't see the world as it is. He continued, reviewing the handwritten label on the bottle in his grip. What are you talking about? I asked. He turned around and placed the bottle on the counter. Pound for pound and mustache for mustache. It was the man from the picture, wiping down the glass. It was Marvin. Should someone tell this poor bloke what happened? He asked. This? This is impossible. I yelled. You're impossible. I stuttered in disbelief. The pit of nausea in my stomach rose with immediacy. Something was brewing in my gut, and it was just moments away from pouring out of me. Marvin placed two glasses beside the bottle. Welcome to my tavern, he said with arms raised, presenting the bar to me. Maybe you should tell him, Hank suggested to Ellie. You can't be here, I muttered to Marvin to Ellie, to all of them. The sensation in my stomach continued to churn. Ellie let out a sigh. (sighs) Ryan, 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 she said after a deep breath. I stared at her blankly, wondering if I would make it to the bathroom in time to throw up if I had to. Even if I could make it, I decided I'd rather puke all over the countertop than to see a bathroom in Marvin's tavern ever again. You can't be here, I repeated. Marvin poured two drinks from his mystery bottle and pushed one towards me, taking a sip from the one he poured for himself. Is the bar closing? I managed to ask, pushing the drink away question felt important to ask. Otherwise, it was like I had fallen into a spider web. We are at the end of our lease, I guess you could say. (laughs) Marvin returned with a laugh. He glanced to Ellie and waited for her to fill in the blanks. Ellie caught Marvin's gaze and turned back to me. We hope the sign might get you to come back, she said. Ellie took a deep breath before continuing. Do you really want to understand? She asked. I nodded. Every part of my body was crawling with dread. This was definitely an oh-so-very-bad idea to come back here. 
I had shipped a werewolf to the moon. The last night you were here, you asked me for a special drink. Do you remember that? She asked. I nodded. Marvin pointed to the drink he poured me. So, I gave it to you, she explained. But the drink I made you was a concoction of sorts. Something that allows the user to see through time and space. I was trying to break the news to you because I didn't think you knew. I couldn't find my words. Knew what? Well, that's your dad, honey. She continued. I gasped for air and found none. The rush of nausea in my stomach took over and pumped waves of vomit out of my mouth. But it wasn't thick or heavy or acidic. It looked like water. Marvin grabbed my glass away with haste. This, he said, would have helped with that. An air of disappointment stood out in his voice. I'm sorry, Ryan, offered the woman in the green dress. I stammered between bouts of heaving, looking to Hank. Yeah, Ryan, when you were out on the lake, Hank started. I think you drowned. He put his hand on my shoulder and nodded quietly. A trail of water drooled from the corner of my mouth. My tavern is for the dead. Can't find it unless you've already passed on, Marvin explained. His words pulled the wind from my lungs. The lights above the bar wavered and burst with a blast of electricity, forcing me to shield my eyes from the raining broken glass. I turned back to Marvin. His neck looked like it had been bent and broken sideways. He watched me from an impossible angle and smiled. But down. In the twenties. He continued. His voice was strained and pressured, attempting to speak at his contorted angle. I turned my gaze to look back at Ellie. Her smile and warm cheeks were replaced by divots in her skin and gaping holes of missing flesh. She was riddled with bullet holes and missing pieces of her body. Ellie, is Beth? I gasped, falling from my bar stool. As I hit the ground, the entire tavern devolved again. It was charred and black and smelled of death. Water again welled up in my throat and mouth. Old places like this. The muslin cuts over the windows. They burn quick and easy, Marvin continued. No fire escapes, no emergency lighting, just a bunch of burning people trying to pull open a jammed front door with bodies blocking the way. He struggled to make his voice heard through his crooked neck. 
The top of the bar cracked and fell to the ground with a thud, sending smoke and ash into the air. I scrambled backwards on the floor and pushed away from them. I crawled backwards and bumped into a man at a table. He looked down at me with a grotesque smile. His teeth pressed through bubbling and decayed skin that hung melted over his mouth. Here, let me give you a hand. He laughed. He reached down to me with a hand of burnt bone and tendons. His clothes had welded to his body, making it impossible to identify charred cloth from skin. I managed to say. Water ran from my mouth with every word, choking my breath. They They were real. No, honey. Not anymore. Not when you were seeing them, Beth answered. Places like this, they gather memories of the things that happened, and they like to dwell on them from time to time. I was trying to show you the coven meetings that took place in the cellar during the Prohibition years. I wanted to help you make sense of things. Of me. And my family. Blood sprayed from her mouth with every word. Water pooled in my mouth and nose. Marvin put his arm around Beth's vibrant corpse. The memory of this place that I was showing you that night. I wanted you to see. I wanted you to know. I looked back to Hank on his bar stool. His beard was scorched, and his skin hung from his body like loose sheets drying in the wind. It's true he said. His eyes looked as if they had boiled in his skull and dripped down his cheeks. What night? I wanted to scream but couldn't get enough air into my lungs. I scooped myself back into another table and knocked a pile of bones to the floor. Footsteps approached from behind. It was the skinless man without ears from the basement. The muscles in his face pooled to form a smile. You met our boy Maury, Beth went on. During those prohibition years, after Marvin died, Maury wanted so badly to have his family back that he found a way to do it. Every night, he hosted coven meetings in the cellar. He gave of his flesh to resurrect his flesh just like the others taught him to do you understand Maurice reached his red and fleshy hand down to pull me to my feet but the strength had left my body and I fell back to the floor in my puddle of watery vomit and he kept at it until we could return to him Beth went on but by then she chuckled There wasn't much of him left. What night? I stammered again. The night Maurice finally succeeded, Beth answered. The night we were reborn. A ball of maggots fell forth from one of the holes in her neck. I wanted to shriek, but gagged instead. Oh, you 
you'll get used to the pain of it, Martin said in his cracked notes. Good to have you with us, Ryan, a voice called out from the front of the bar. It was Ed. He was smashed against the front door where he had been hoisting his beer bottle only moments ago. Burnt bodies littered the ground around him and on top of him. We didn't mean for you to find out like this, the woman in the green dress said. She stood and approached from behind Maurice. The skin was missing from her entire body. I'm sorry, Rye, she offered. I crawled to my feet and attempted to worm my way across the ash-laden grounds towards the door. With every effort, the door seemed to stretch further away. my name. I choked through mouthfuls of water. Why? The skinned lady continued towards me, wincing as her vulnerable flesh made contact with ash floating through the air. Maurice joined her, both of them standing side by side in front of me. She's your mom, Beth explained. She and Maury, they're your parents. But the government took you away from her when they found out about some of the things she did. Beth paused and smiled, revealing her blood-stained teeth. But we wouldn't let them keep you from us forever, Ryan. We're your family. Once you found us, we were finally all together. And it was so good to be all together, Ryan, wasn't it? We waited here so long for you. Beth looked fondly to Maurice. But then, you left us. And we were so afraid that you were going to find the light. And that you might leave us for good. She frowned with blood-stained lips. I didn't want Ryan. Marvin grinned. The men in our family? Nah. There's no light for us. We had to keep our doors open while we waited for you to come back, Beth continued. We are a respite for the dead, and we wouldn't close our doors before you returned to us. She motioned to the bar around us. As you can see, it was getting so crowded. Corpses and bodies riddled the entire tavern in piles disembodied heads enmeshed with the rotten limbs of man, animal, and insect alike. You're here, and you won't leave us now, Ryan. You can't find the light here. (sighs) I'm not dead! I called out between gasps for air. I'm not dead! I repeated. Water splashed to the ground from my mouth as I turned to crawl towards the door again. Why keeping me here? I'm not dead. I choked again. You are, Ryan, Beth answered. I looked down at my body, drenched with lake water, bloated, soft, and full. We all are, Marvin said, motioning to the corpses throughout the tavern. Maurice the skinned woman in the green dress, and Beth, 
joined him behind the bar, where they stood in their states of morbid decay. And in death, he said, through a bloodied grin. Our family can finally be together. Forever. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can send your scary stories to scarytosleep at gmail.com. I will be opening it up for kids submissions soon. We know the kids episode is coming up, our annual kids episode. And I know, you know, parents and children alike this year are going through some extra roughness. So if your child submitted something last year and is just not up to it this year, please do not feel pressured. Um, And if maybe... You know, they wrote something and you just don't have time to proofread it or get it into me. Also, don't feel pressured. There's a lot going on right now. The kids episode will probably be shorter this year. I'm just, I'm anticipating there's going to be less submissions and that is totally fine. I, a lot of times I get submissions from teachers for their whole classrooms and that's just not feasible this year. And also teachers, teachers, please don't feel pressured. If you want to make this a classroom extracurricular assignment for Halloween. That is totally cool too. That's what's happened the last few years. I've had a few of those. Um, If not, then don't feel like you need to for those of you who have done this in previous years. Um, But I'll be opening it up soon. I just don't want you to all, I just, you know, we've got enough going on. Halloween's going to be difficult as it is. Um, So, but, you know, if you want to, then I will let you know when. Um, It'll be soon. It'll probably be uh, within this next week. I will be opening that up. Um, Remember to follow the show on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, Reddit, Instagram. I think Instagram's the one that always trips me up. It just doesn't flow, you know? Um, Check out um, the articles I mentioned at the top of the show. There will be links in the show notes. And I believe that is all for this week. Um, Yeah. Enjoy the rest of your week. Enjoy your weekend. Enjoy Labor Day weekend for my American listeners, uh, if you have the day off. And if not, then I am sorry, and I hope they're paying you holiday pay. So, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. Item number SCP-5186. SCP-7160. SCP-7533. Object class. Euclid. Keter. Safe. Special containment procedures. Spreading across the hemisphere and kicking up vast amounts of ash and dust. (laughs) The only thing I could hear was 7219 (laughs) laughing. Do you remember your name? Counseling. 
Appointment update. I feel them again. Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. They're in my ears! Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. Nobody understands! SCP Archives is a weekly fiction podcast. Each episode, we dive into the strange, the unknown, and the... Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at scparchives.com.